leadership through trust and management, not micromanaging, but directionally managing, really kind of just setting goals and, and a strategy and then leaving, leaving the, the how to the team. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. I think our guest today has lived in more countries than most of us have traveled. As a Cuban-American, he considers himself a citizen of the world. His relationships and spirituality both driving his why. In today's conversation, we'll take a deeper dive into how he discovered his purpose, what phases of his career prepared him for his life as an entrepreneur, and how his current HR technology company was birthed from personal growth. CEO and founder of Human Intelligence, Juan Betancourt, welcome to The Dirt. Thanks, Jim, for having me here today. You bet. You bet. So, Juan, I gave my version of who you are and what you do on the surface level, but can you share with the audience what it is you really do at Human Intelligence? Yeah, so we're the first company. We're, we're called The Culture Software. And we're the first company that basically takes the old world of psychometrics, personality tests, if you will, combines it with a software platform to give really powerful insights around what drives an organization, the way they work, um, team by team, all the way up to the CEO. So we actually can produce the world's first CEO dashboard. Um, and so leaders can see, do we have the right people to achieve our, our, our strategy? Um, and therefore, we improve performance, collaboration, and we do it in a way that's scalable and actionable every day. So imagine um, a better understanding between every employee when they read an email or they make a phone call or they go into a meeting. Um, you know, it's, it's really infusing emotional intelligence throughout an entire organization. Uh, to, to work better. Something that's been missing for far too long, if you ask me. And you you left a, a cushy enterprise, cushy enterprise lifestyle to start your own recruiting firm. And then now this HR tech culture as a service platform, which seems like a pretty natural progression when you say it out loud, given your expertise. But was it really as straight of a journey as it sounds? No, I, I was the guy at, at 40 that people were like, Juan, when are you going to do your thing? When, when are you going to find your purpose? Um, and, uh, you know, I, as Cuban American, we're very much like other immigrant groups that are successful. Picture the Jewish uh, tribe, picture Indians, where it's understood you'll be a doctor or a lawyer and, and go to a great school. I, I did go to Harvard. I did go to Wharton. And so we're kind of trained to, to be risk averse and just do what will guarantee you a certain comfort level. And, and so I did that, worked at the Procter & Gamble's, the Reeboks, the Pumas, worked at the blue chip search firms like Hydric and Struggles, Corn Ferry. I had all those, you know, perfect resume, you know, worked at Siebel Systems, a company that went from uh, uh, $8 million to $3 billion in revenue in two years. We hired 1,000 people a month. I was employee like 150 and there were 12,000 the next year. Um, so I had all these great experiences, um, but there was something missing. I wasn't having impact on the world at the scale that I thought I could or that I, that I always felt I should. And um, 
it's ironic that the at the year that I became extremely spiritual with different modalities of breathing and self-awareness and um and, and other aided ways of, of gaining higher consciousness to myself and, and to my soul, I also learned and decided to trust my instinct and jump off that platform of safety um, and start human intelligence and, and do something that was risky, but that also could impact hundreds of millions of people one day. Um, and my parents thought I was crazy. We didn't send you to Harvard and Wharton to, to go do that. Like, why you, you have a good salary. You're making tons of money. Why would you go? go to, and so uh, the rest is history. It's been six years um, since we really launched. And uh, now looking back, it was the greatest decision of my life. Sounds like you're no stranger to growth at all. <laughs> so um, success like you've seen doesn't really come without getting in the dirt, so to speak. So what is a success story at Human Intelligence over the last six years that you can share with us, paired, of course, with some sort of growth obstacle that initially got in the way of that success? Yeah, and when you say success story, meaning like a, like a customer or running a company? Yeah, something something internally um, okay. could, could be with a could be with a customer, could be with an employee, really anything at human intelligence. Yeah, I think being able to so I'm going to give a couple examples and yeah. and feel free to use whichever one with your audience. But um, I think uh, capital raise. I think uh, I was a naive entrepreneur who had a great idea. The product wasn't there yet, and I just thought people would throw money at it. Um, unfortunately, I inherited um, a history of the company that that made that more challenging. And there's a long, steep learning curve around raising capital on how you should value yourself, uh, what kind of VCs are interested in your phase of the company, um, you know, uh, the sector you play in, HR. A lot of VCs are like, oh, well, you shouldn't have gone into HR software. HR is a horrible buyer. We would never invest in HR, right? So I didn't know a lot of these things. And so uh, to be able to still get through no, 95% of the time, and, and I'm not talking about dating back in college, but you know, trying to raise money and getting no nine of 10 meetings, uh, but having the, you know, staying true to how powerful this platform is, you know, we ended up raising maybe not through venture capital, but finding ways of raising $10 million. So, you know, th that's been a huge success and it's kind of fueled the ups and downs of the organization as we've gone. So that, that's one story of of perseverance and learning that, um, and now we're doing a new raise for 4 million that I think we'll, we'll pretty much do easily because of all those learnings. And it will be institutional money as opposed to uh, angels and friends from before. Um, a second learning is how to hire. Um, you know, I've always, I was an executive search uh, recruiter. I would hire the top executives in the country. Hiring for uh, well-paid executives at large organizations is very different than hiring for startup. And people who have had great careers don't necessarily translate to a startup with little funds and little process. And so I had to turn the entire team over. We're only about 15 people. Um, but other than three or four developers who've been there since the start, all the operational functions, sales, marketing, you know, the CTO, um, uh, customer success, um, I've had to turn a CFO accounting. I've had to turn everyone over at least once. Um, the last three years where we've actually hit an inflection point of growth, we haven't turned anyone over and we've actually had the same team, which that stability has led to much faster growth and, and doing things with a longer vision. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I know that, um, you know, when we first spoke, we talked about the challenges of hiring salesperson number one, for instance, especially in sales when you're not used to hiring for sales and, and you're the founder driving 
so much of the company's sales, if not all of its sales initially. Um, when you think about um, really the, the classic obstacle that we see in growth stage businesses of hiring for your first salesperson and then your second, how did you overcome that, that sales challenge? Yeah, that has been the hardest role to fill. Um, and I don't think we've cracked it yet because you know we still only have one guy that's really good um, that we're leveraging and we, that's been the highest turnover role. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you know, part of the challenge is it's not just selling software, it's selling uh, psychology or culture. Um, so we can find these assessment leaders who sell assessments and sell uh, coaching and organizational behavior. But then when it comes time to sell a, an enterprise software platform, they're lost and, and vice versa. Selling an enterprise software platform, it's a lot more than just that. It's this IO psychology mindset of understanding culture and leadership. And so it is a harder role, um, but but you also get what you pay for. And probably the best success we've had is when we actually pay a lot more money for that great salesperson than trying to do pay for performance, you know, like, oh, well, we can't pay you. Um, we'll hire five people for like 3000 a month and, and, and be paying 15 grand a month and having five people all fail. It ended up being better to just hire one person who's really good at 15,000 um, than, than hiring five who weren't so good. So that was that was definitely a lesson around talent um, and salespeople. Um, there, there is another lesson that I think is probably as powerful or more than the other examples. Um, myself as a leader, I've always worked at blue chip organizations and usually there, everyone's the best at what they do. And you say something and everybody goes off and does it and you don't have to follow up. And when you're not capitalized well, and you don't have much money to hire all those A players you have to go to market with what, you know, some A and some B and some C and still make it work. And so um, it was really hard because wherever there wasn't a quality output in any project deliverable or strategic direction, I would then try to get involved. And that's fine if it's like just me and three people and like two projects. Uh-huh. But then we had a hundred clients and then we had product that was way beyond me being kind of the default product manager and me trying to be the, the person figuring out all the features. And I was starting to work literally hundred hours a week and I wasn't able. And, and so I wasn't able to do all the things I wanted to be perfect. And then I wasn't doing the role of CEO anymore, the right way where you're leading 90% and, and doing 10, I was doing 90. And the impact on my team was that they were getting demotivated and, and unengaged because I was micromanaging them and quite frankly, making them all feel dumb and, and, and that wasn't helping. And so I finally hit a moment. I don't know if it was like personal insight or just frustration, but I put my arms in the air and said, I can't do this anymore. I asked everybody for their feedback and sure enough, my, I hire people who are very direct. They all told me you're, you're coming across as a, you know what, um, we don't like working for you and you, you're condescending and all your feedback, uh, you're telling us how to do it. And so why'd you hire us? Right. And you go do it yourself kind of thing. And so I kind of let go and it was the hardest thing in the world. And letting go as an executive or a startup CEO is, is, is basically leadership and trusting. And as I trusted them, knowing though that directionally they might not agree with me and they might take a whole product feature to wrong, not wrong, a different direction, which I might think is wrong. It was almost better to get 150 units of energy out of them instead of 40, because I was getting, I was cautioned and worried. And that 150, even if it wasn't the way I saw the world, 
would get the clients more excited, the partners more excited, the product would just seem to be better. And the more I let go, the better our product was, our relationship with partners, our customer, our sales, and revenue started going up and we started winning awards. And it's almost like the more I got out of the way, and although I'm still guiding the ship and there's clearly a Juan CEO presence, um, the more I let them run the ship and me just kind of directionally say, let's go east, the more successful we've been. So trust has really led to not micromanaging and extreme success and everyone's much happier. Would you kind of coin that as the, the learnings of the differences between leadership and management, or how would you, how would you simplify that in, in the context of self-learning for yourself? I mean, leadership through trust and management not micromanaging, but directionally managing, really kind of just setting goals and, and a strategy and then leading, leaving the the how to the team. Yeah. Like I, I set the what, now they're doing the how. I used to I used to try to tell them the how. And 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 that was just it was not only was it not successful in terms of performance as a company or individuals in the company, it was exhausting and I was burning out. Listen, Juan, I think uh, a lot of the listeners probably could 100% align with feeling that that founder burnout, that that need to do it all yourself as the as the employee number one, as the founder, as the entrepreneur. I know I had the same challenges and still do. I mean, it's it's tough. It's really tough to to overcome that that barrier of being the best leader that you can be. And I know to you there was a big spiritual and and wellness aspect to that and, and that connection to leading that we often overlook as, as founders. And some may think of this as founder burnout, others as you know a healthy, balanced lifestyle. But no matter how we view it, there's a ton of evidence that a founder's individual wellness and the team's wellness directly correlated to organizational performance. You know, you seem like a, a guy who's got it all figured out in terms of founder wellness, but was this always the case or how did you know, you know, how'd you always kind of, how'd you get to this point that you've self-realization, if you will? I'll go with the, 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 the letter P. So my parents were key <laughs> in putting in a, a self-awareness beacon um, and they always trying to be the best you can be not competitive, um, but you know, be the best you can be right. If you lose a tennis point against some great tennis player and you played your best and they crushed you, by winning points that were amazing, then that's great. Who cares? You played your best, right? So I think my parents on one hand, and then Procter and Gamble. I mean, they they really are a great management school. And you know, the I you know leaving Harvard, where I thought I was a little cocky, twenty two year old who could rule the world. You know, like oh, I went to Harvard, blah blah blah. Um, and even though I was a public school kid who you know had no money growing up and was pretty poor, never went to a restaurant until I was fourteen years old. Lived near Boston and never had a dollar on the tee to go to Boston from Cambridge. Um, you know, where I had a lot of rich friends at Harvard eating out and partying and drinking. And I never did any of that because hey, I didn't have money. Um, so uh, when I got from Harvard to Procter & Gamble and my boss proceeded to rewrite every, and we didn't have email at the time, I'm 51. So every one page memo kind of that I would write with a red pen, he would rewrite every sentence and reteach me how to write. And, you know, I went to Harvard, I knew how to write, but not business write. And then every strategic discussion at the end of the meeting, every week, we'd stop after 45 minutes. And the last 15 minutes was how I made good points or bad points. I mean, there was coaching and real-time feedback on me as an employee 
as a team member and as a leader every day, every week at Procter & Gamble for four years. So I think the genesis of my parents to be open to that and not quit Procter & Gamble, but actually latch onto that and say, wow, this organization really cares about my development because P&G, Procter & Gamble, they hire for 30 years, right? They only promote from within, or at least back in the day. And so they really do want to invest in making you be more self-realized. And I think that really took an inflection point as an adult uh, when I did become more spiritual, when I learned how to listen to the cues energetically, how to read a room vibrationally, um, um, and 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 literally go off and meditate on things and really become a leader from the heart and not a leader from the head. Because in this country, in the world, I would imagine, um, zero years to 30, the way you get ahead in school, jobs, career, it's being left side brain and it's kind of measured and it's not about being in your heart. But when you hit 30, you're now leading people and you're being strategic and you know, leadership and team is actually not being in your head and it's actually all being in your heart. And so all the things that got you to where you are in your late 20s and early 30s are all the things that will keep you there and the way to kind of have a, an inflection point step function up in terms of your next career. That's all from the heart. And there is no memo that goes out to people on their 30th birthday saying, hey, <laughs> Juan, Jim, now life is going to change. Success in life and career and even family is not being in your head. It's being in your heart. And that was probably the key fuel and framework shift and transformation that allowed me to take on human intelligence as well as a wife and two kids, which I now have. Very cool. Very cool. So um, we talked a little bit about the talent aspect, the you know, the hiring, the capital, all the things that go into building a company, right? And, um, you know, as I was getting ready for this call, I, I came across a series of articles from Bain and Company that spoke to the challenge uh, Latino-owned business owners in particular experience in fundraising. In fact, one quote stated that less than 2% of deals went to companies with at least one Latino founder, not just Latino run, but at least one Latino founder which just astounded me given the push so many investors are making towards diversity and inclusion. Any, any insight to add there, anything that pops up in terms of your journey as a, as a Latino founder? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one key word I would say is frustrating. Um, you know, if you ask the, the average educated person in the U S in business, um, is this country looking out after minorities in terms of giving them a fair shot, whether it's employment, jobs, leadership, and then moving to startup world in terms of funding and um, giving them a shot, right? Because if there's a community that that has the money, they're more likely to give it to people they're more comfortable with in terms of how they look, feel, and 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 just relationships, right? And uh, and I've had a real tough time even getting on the radar um, of, of some of these, uh, you know, there aren't many VC firms that focus on, on minority business enterprise. We are an MBE, for instance, which is, there's a whole process to do that, which takes time and money. Um, but, but I have found that, you know, it's kind of like it mirrors the venture capital world mirrors the um, diversity and includes in the chief diversity officer world. Every year I go to the National Minority Supplier Diversity Conference, NMSDC, and it's usually in Detroit. With COVID, they've halted it, made it virtual. But 
you know, they have a, a, a thick 500 page book with the picture and the page of every corporate Fortune 500 company, Coca-Cola, Procter Gamble. And, you know, you see these pictures and you see the whole Fortune 500 and every chief diversity officer and like you meet them at the booth and they're, di- and they're number twos. And um, it would be fair to say that 95 percent of them are African-American. And and there's also a problem with giving funding to African-Americans. I, I don't doubt that. I know that. But it seems like the fair, you know, a big share of of people in the corporate environment who are getting the chief diversity officer roles are African American. You don't see many people of uh, Indian descent, um, uh, both uh, as my Indian wife says, both the dot or the feather type of Indian background. Um, you don't see many chief diversity officers who are Hispanic, um, let alone Asian, um, and so. It mirrors that actually in the venture capital world where, you know, I've applied to some of these funds that invest in, in minority business enterprises for, you know, black and Latinx or black and brown, they call them often. Um, and uh, almost always it's all African-Americans who are uh, running the VC fund, you know, and, it, it, you know, not that that will preclude me from getting funding, but it's almost a similar problem. <laughs> Of, of whites to people of color. Now, people of color, it's like there's a lion's share there. And, and I, I think the last numbers show that Hispanics are equal to African-American in percent of the population or even greater, yet you have a lot less representation in corporate boards, a lot less representation in uh, chief diversity officers who are fixing the problem, less representation in venture capital. Um, and so I, I, I think part of the problem is there's no voice for Hispanics, right? Um, you know, you don't have a, a Black Lives Matters movement for Hispanics, right? There's nobody really uh, lobbying for the, the the border issues, and 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 I don't know. It, it, it I haven't found that. You know, we're arguably the hottest software company in the country for HR software, which is the hottest space in enterprise software. We've won more awards, five of them actually, of the six total major awards in the category HR enterprise software. We've won the majority of those awards and we still can't get money. <laughs> There's something wrong with that picture. Well, hopefully between founders like yourself and articles like the Bain article, you know, there starts to become more of a voice here. And maybe when you get a giant 10 figure exit or at least nine figures, you can be the voice and the capital voice behind a lot of this too, because I can tell you're passionate about it. Yeah. I mean, if I do exit, I mean, I do want to be come a, uh, a mentor to Hispanics, right? If you're a Hispanic child in this country, and I think we're like 17 or 18% of the country, there's not one person in society that you can say, hey, mom, dad, I want to be like that person, whether it's politics as presidents, and there have been you know, people running for president, um, or but nobody's won it, right? Uh, African-Americans have Obama, right? Um, there's never been business people who are Hispanic that are well-known, um, so politics, business, history, like Hispanics, actually, there's no one even to point to where, uh, you know, you know, the African-American community has a, you know, lots of success there. And they've done a really great job of promoting that success, um, whether it be through Hollywood or media. Right. But, you know, there is no Hispanic Don Lemon. Right. There is no uh, Hispanic um, uh, Oprah Winfrey or the guy who runs Vista Equity, uh, the, you know, one of the largest private equity firms in the country out of Texas, that African-American. Like there are a lot of marquee African-American leaders who, you know, are, they're great mentors to all the young African-American kids out there, female and male. And 
there's literally not one well-known Hispanic in this country other than athletes who play baseball, which, which those aren't the people who are going to be driving, you know, uh, mentorship and, and, and uh, uh, big vision for, for young kids. I hope to be one of those. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I'm excited for you to be one of them. The, um, you know, that same, that same article um, that I mentioned earlier, that Bain article mentioned that when Latino owned businesses generally approach the $1 million revenue mark or so, they appear to start to struggle with profitability and cash flow, making it way harder to obviously scale and, and resulting in decelerated growth. However, there's significant reward for those who do manage to push beyond that $1 million threshold to about $5 million and break through. And when those that break through are actually growing at a rate of double white-owned businesses. That's, that, that's a pretty incredible <laughs> statement from, uh, from Bain and, and a lot of research found, fund, funded in that or founded in that. How does that resonate with you and, and what advice can you give to other founders as they advance beyond the $1 million uh, revenue mark? So we're, we're one of those who've kind of pushed through. We're not at the 5 million yet, but we're quickly approaching. And so uh, it's good to know those numbers. Um, you know, I get a lot of weird faces when when I come onto Zoom and, and they see Juan and I look like this. I guess I don't look like a Juan. I've heard many people tell me in my meetings, oh, you don't look like a Juan. You don't sound like a Juan. Um, and I'm always like, what, what does that mean? Um, and maybe there's a lot of people who aren't answering the emails and the calls I make because of my name. And that, that's a possibility. Um, but I guess once a company gets the 5 million, they have money to do marketing. And I think the brand of the company becomes greater than the individual CEO. And so everyone's going to be forced to buy that product. So I think if to support the, that study, it kind of gives the message that, God, if you get there without the help of your name or your background, it's actually a much more, it's a filter for like the true unicorns or the true high growth companies that despite the, 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 the lag effect of being a minority business and some people who might be prejudiced without even knowing it or, or some knowing it, unfortunately, um, it's probably a better bet to grow. And so to all other minority leaders out there, as hard as it is, if you make it, it might make it even easier once you do. Yeah, well, hopefully you don't have to turn into like a mariachi or something just to get hurt as an Hispanic. <laughs> <Right. actually. laughs> what do that's they expect funny. when you come on? You're just you're gonna look like a prototypical. I mean, come on, that's 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 crazy. Um, yeah, no, I, I it was funny. There's a story when I was in San Francisco working at that software company called Siebel Systems. We were still using fax machines. This is 1999, 2000. I was in business development or what they called alliances, and. <clears throat> There, there are many there are not many Hispanics in technology period right and even in the West Coast uh, in San Francisco back then and maybe a little bit more now but 99 and and so everybody wanted to work with Siebel they had a huge alliance group you know all people from Harvard Warren MIT Stanford so I was one of those I was the only Hispanic at the company that I knew and I think there was one guy from Stanford uh Hispanic guy uh in, in product development that I knew but so I would I would talk to people on the phone and give them my fax number and tell them my name. And, you know, these are all these companies, high tech companies who wanted to partner with customers. And I'd consistently get faxes that said Juan Betancourt, W-O-N or W-A-N, because I guess they couldn't imagine that a guy, a Hispanic person with J-U-A-N would, would be that articulate on the phone. Um, and then many people who I'd given them my name and my email, they would call me and say, your email's not working. I'm doing W-O-N dot you know, and they were misspelling my name because they just couldn't, 
it wasn't even in the realm of possibility that my name was spelt J-U-A-N. And I always found that fascinating. I'm talking like two or three a month, which, which wow. is, you know, like 30 a year. And I was talking to like maybe 200 to 300 people. So maybe one in 10 people just they couldn't get their arms around that there was an educated Hispanic that they were talking to on the other side of the phone, which I always, that always, I always noted that as kind of like crazy in 1999. Yeah. Did you, did you send them your Harvard certificate and your, <laughs> right. <laughs> right back? And I, the, the emotional uh, uh, reaction to that um, I learned, thank God how to deal with that. When I got to college, it used to bug the hell out of me, but then by college, I, I kind of wanted to always believe that it wasn't that people were racist. They just never had exposure to, to caliber people from that ethnic group. And it was, it's sad, but I can't blame them for just being closed minded. So, you know, I, I would say it's more just uh, lack of exposure than racism. I, I do want to make that distinction. I'm not one of these people that feels like racism's the worst thing in the world in the U S right. I, I think there's no time in the history of mankind of 2000 years um, that's better and has been better for minorities than today. Does it have a long way to go? Yeah, but are you kidding me? Don't put any black or Hispanic or Indian or Asian 10 years ago on this planet, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, it was only worse than it is today. So we're all headed in the right direction. Just some pockets are, are better than others. Certainly a while, a while to go, but, but that's, that's, a, that's a good, good note. So come, come back to you, come back to human intelligence for a second. And, you know, I just try to give some a little time for self-promotion, if you will, given the amazing, you know, things that you've already offered to the group today or to the to the audience today, and and the tips that you've offered have been great. But how can those listening, founders, investors, others, help you grow, help take your business to the next level? Yeah, I mean, if anybody's watching this or listening, and uh, they have a, a company that's five hundred employees or greater that they know or their own, and and the culture is important to them and they want to kind of improve performance and collaboration and a very scalable tool that within a week, everybody's using in, in an email and in calendar to, to work better together and to reduce friction between people just so everybody can actually understand each other. Uh, if you believe in inclusion, not just race uh, inclusivity, but actually how every two people, no matter the race can get along better and work better together, uh, give, give a shout out. So kind of potential clients, if you will, uh, it's not a risk. We already work with Coca-Cola, Southwest Beverages, Lyft, Bank of the West, Aflac, Dollar General. So we have massive enterprise clients. Our platform's in 12 languages. We have clients all over the world. And then uh, from a capital raise, we are doing a $4 million raise. So if there's any either angels or venture capital firms uh, that invest in HR um, technology, SaaS, or in inclusion, we're the first DEI platform in the world that's an inclusion platform for better understanding that everybody can use quickly um, or for remote work. I mean, these are all the categories that different investors might have a thesis around. Uh, we kind of check every one of those boxes. And again, as a minority-run startup, uh, we also check that box. I think we have 75% of our employees are uh, Hispanic or Black. Oh, that's incredible. Really living the diversity name that, you, that you're preaching about. So that's great. So you heard it. Investors, $4 million rounds. Enterprises, get in. Only a week up and running. Is that right? What? Right, one? Yeah, I just we just launched the, the raise. We, uh, we've doubled revenue every year for the last four years. 
Um, and that's almost with no marketing. That's why I need growth capital. Uh, and with one salesperson, you can imagine if we put fuel to this fire and this amazing uh, product, which, you know, one of the the five biggest software companies in the world, which I, I can't name, they're embedding us in everything they do. Um, they have over 70 million users. So uh, we're going to quickly become one of the, the fastest growing software companies in HR with that partnership as well. That's incredible. I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. So to close us off now, uh, we always do this founder five questions of five questions surrounding growth, five questions to the founder. So your company, two to five words. Moneyball for HR. The top one to three metrics or measures that you're focused on. Adoption. Performance. And scalability. Those are the three things that, that every client should experience with our tool. The top tip for growth stage founders like you. Don't put a value that's ahead of where you are from a revenue perspective. It's hard to really catch back up. Mm-hmm. Favorite book or podcast that's helped you grow as a leader? Oh, this one. I mean, <laughs> the book that changed my life and has changed the life of 587 people I've recommended it to. And it's the only book I recommend to anyone who wants to understand not just life, but spirituality and not just of this life, but for eternity and what it's all about and why it's all and how it's all connected. It's called the journey of souls by Dr. Michael Newton. Mm. Great. And last one, favorite quote. It's going to go to my grandfather, Albert Facundo Borges, who was a famous plastic surgeon who invented actually the technique to do scar revision. He's in every uh, book in the world for uh, principles of plastic surgery. He's basically the founder of modern day plastic surgery. He had a workshop downstairs and there was a quote up there on the wall that I would look at every time I would visit on the weekends. It was the harder I work, the luckier I am. And so I have lived on that mantra uh, since the day I was born. And, and I've learned that I don't know if it's true or just because you work so hard, things just happen for you all the time. So maybe it just ends up being true because um, I don't know if I've become luckier, but things always work out. And maybe it's because I just work so hard. I love that. Yeah. On that note, Juan, thank you so much for sharing your dirt with us. And how can listeners get in touch with you? They can uh, just email me at our uh, company email. It's my first name, Juan, J-U-A-N, at humanintelligence.com. Now, it's two words combined. We get rid of the middle two letters, I-N, so human, and then intelligence, not intelligence. Awesome. And we'll include all that in the show notes so you guys can get a hold of Juan and maybe be the investor that helps him scale to the next level. Awesome. Thanks a bunch, Juan. Really appreciate you being here. Jim, I really appreciate you and the questions you've asked and your viewership for listening today. All right. Take care. Thank you. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.